Hi, I'm Alex Bellinger, and this is Small Biz Pod on Friday, the 27th of March. Well, I'm kind of really excited about today's podcast because, you know, every now and then, they're all good, of course, but every now and then you get a, a really wonderful interview. And this one with Laura Tennyson, who is the founder of Jojo Mammon Bebe, is a particularly good interview. Jojo Mammon Bebe, of course, that um, wonderful retail online and catalogue fashion company for uh, pregnant mothers and toddlers. Uh, a great story. Laura's got a good story to tell and we dig deep into a lot of interesting topics which are, are really, really valuable, I think, in today's economic climate, particularly her uh, slower organic growth, her resistance to borrowing and debt and her uh, determination to keep hold of the company and keep her entrepreneurial uh, vision alive rather than sacrificing it to the needs of investors. So, very interesting interview, uh, highly recommended, and I'm sure you're all going to enjoy it. Other than that, I've got a really wonderful interview too, uh, a short, snappy, two-minute highlight interview uh, with uh, Denise Purdy as part of our series that Alibaba.com sponsored on importing and exporting. That's well worth staying tuned to the end for as well. And uh, I'm going to cover off uh, some, some reader comments. I'm going to say thank you to the over 1,700 of you now who have joined the Small Biz Pod Facebook group. So... Thank you ever so much for, for that. Really appreciate it. But also, I want to say, as ever, a big thank you to sponsors Rackspace. Now, as you know, Rackspace do uh, small business web hosting. And it's not just any old small business web hosting. It's the small business web host where Small Biz Pod is hosted. So I can personally, uh, and Small Biz Pod recommends highly, uh, Rackspace's hosting. It is a bit more expensive than other people's, but in my honest opinion, you pay for your, pay for what you get. And Rackspace is top notch, and the service as well. The guys, the tech guys behind the scenes, can set you up, set things up for you, check that things are all working right. Uh, amazing turnaround, really is fanatical support, as they call it. And uh, it's it's just I really don't have a bad thing to say about Rackspace, and I'm just feel incredibly lucky that they are sponsoring uh, Small Biz Pod this month. Um, you get, you know, 24-7, there's somebody there to help you. Uh, there's 100% network uptime guaranteed. They fix any hardware problems with your server within an hour. They've got cloud-based hosting too. Uh, a lot of very, 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 very well-known sites are hosted with uh, Rackspace, not just Small Biz Pod, of course. And it's rock solid, and it rocks. So, if I were you, I and you, your, if your, you know, small business uh, uh, website matters to you, if you're selling or through products through uh, the internet, or if you are using the web, as many uh, service companies are increasingly are to support customers, then you need something that's going to stay up, that's going to work. Uh, and that you can rely on. You just don't. I just don't have to worry about my web hosting anymore. Uh, so whether it's dedicated or managed hosting, uh, Rackspace, in my opinion, are the people to go with. So head over to smallbizpod.co.uk, check out the uh, links there, the banners there, click on those, go and see what Rackspace has to offer. And you know, when you support our sponsors, you're supporting Small Biz Pod. So thank you for checking them out. So now let's go straight into that interview with Laura Tennyson, founder of Jojo Mammon Bebe. 
Okay, so I'm at the British Library with a very well-known entrepreneurial figure in the UK, one of the most successful businesswomen in retail, I guess, Laura Tennyson from Jojo Mammon Baby. Laura, welcome to Small Biz Pod. Hello. Now, I think quite a lot of people know quite a bit about your uh, career, your entrepreneurial journey through Jojo Mammon Baby, but you have been in business for yourself for, what, the best part of 30 years, something like that? How did that, how did that arise? How did that start, that desire to, to, to run your own business? Well, I think um, the best part of 30 years is probably about right. Um, I really started in business in a very, very small way. I started trading on the school playground, and that was purely a matter of being able to offer something that other people didn't have and wanting something that I couldn't have. So it was a very basic form of trading. Mm. And I was able to design and make doll's clothes because I was relatively creative. And I even then uh, knew that I wanted to do something in fashion. And they had sweets. And I <laughs> wasn't allowed sweets. So I was able to trade, in those days, Barbie yeah. doll clothes for sweets. And it kind of worked out quite well. And I had little sales in the playground. Yeah. And that, I suppose, is my first launch into business. And also a, a hint of your fashion future. Almost certainly a hint of my fashion future, although I have to say we've become a little bit tamer. In those days, I was very <laughs> outlandish with my designs. Okay. Um, but initially, um, you were a property dealer, I think, in France. Is that right? Well, yes, I kind of fell into property. Um, when I was at school, after making doll's clothes, I started making menswear. And throughout my later years at school, I had a business making very ornate Rococo men's designs. And it, it, it worked perfectly well on a sort of made-to-measure uh, level. Um, but it was very much a cottage industry. And I carried on doing that throughout my school years and a little bit after I left school. I then gave myself a self-imposed apprenticeship and I went to work for a company called Aquascutum mm -hmm. where I drove the HR department absolutely mad because every three months I went up to them and I said, I've done that job now, give me another job, give me another job. Yeah. And they were incredibly good to me. Yeah. I only stayed with them for about a year and a half, but during that time I went in from being assistant manager in uh, Coats and Raincoats uh -huh. and progressed up the ranks until eventually I was running the ladies' wear floor in yeah. Regent Street with a large team and a very high turnover. I was still only about uh, 21 or 22 by that stage. So I had spent this time in retail, in garment manufacturing, and I really knew what I wanted to do. Mm. The, the French business came purely by chance. I was looking to start a fashion company, and I had absolutely no capital, and I had no one who would invest in me. I was young, and I was inexperienced. And completely by chance, a friend of mine asked me to go to France for the weekend. She'd been left some money by a grandmother and wanted to buy a house. I'd Already had a little bit of dabbling in property in London. I'd, with my first job or with my first salary, I'd bought a, a, a rundown flat. I'd done it up myself. I was artistic. I'd taught myself how to build a little bit. And um, I saw a gap in the market on this weekend trip to France. We were met by uh, French estate agents who had no idea what the British wanted. And uh, in, on one occasion, we were met after lunch by an estate agent who was totally drunk, gave us the keys to his car and a map and said, here, drive, drive yourselves around. He promptly went to sleep in the back, reeking of garlic. Um, so I saw a gap in the market and I thought, okay, I'll put fashion on hold for a bit yeah. and I'll run a French property company. 
So I launched that company and uh, built it up over the next two and a half years and was able to sell it as a going concern to be able to come back into fashion. And selling Aquila, the French property company, gave me some of my startup capital for Jojo. Now, this is actually quite pertinent because, one of, in my opinion, one of the most interesting things about your business in general, in terms of general business principles, is that you, you, you've run your business for the best, for a long time, debt-free. And the approach of actually entrepreneurially going out, uh, slightly taking a detour uh, into a different business sector in order to find that capital to do the thing you love, I think is symptomatic of your whole approach. What is your what is your view of debt? I mean, in the current in the current circumstances, you know, people must be looking back. There are lots of entrepreneurs looking back, thinking, "I wish I had no debt." Uh, why Why did you take that approach and uh, and not and not look for investment or look for for borrowing to get a start in the thing you wanted to do earlier? I think it was down to necessity. Yeah. Uh, with my first business plan, I took it to every high street bank and no one would touch me. <laughs> I was told, you have no track record. I was yeah. told, you're too young. Yeah. I was told, get someone to back you, use family. I asked my family, asked my father to lend me £4,000 to start my first fashion company. He took about four months to say no. <laughs> he didn't believe in me. And that was the point, that I wouldn't uh, have got the backing at that stage. So I realized, start another business, a service industry, a property agency doesn't require capital. Yeah. So I was able to launch that from my bedroom mm. with, with very, very minimal borrowing. I did borrow about £2,000 from my brother to, to start that business. I repaid that with interest six months later. And having been so badly let down in those early days by the banks, I actually had a bit of arrogance. And I thought, well, I did it first time round without them. I'm damned if I'm going to let the banks have, hold me uh, to ransom now. So mm. even at this very moment, we are in a position where we could borrow a lot more money from the banks. But the bank, our bank in particular, has asked us to go and have a business audit done, a working capital audit done, by a very expensive firm of accountants. And I won't do it. I know our business is sound. Our bank knows our business is sound. Mm. And two years ago, a year ago, the banks were bending over backwards to lend yeah. us money. Now, as it happens, we could do with some cash at the moment because, obviously, it's very difficult to fund forward purchasing. Mm. And so, um, but I'm not going to be held to ransom. And I'm very glad I didn't because in the current economic climate, were we heavily in debt, we would be in a very difficult position. You went, fr you went from France. I know you had a terrible car accident whilst in France. How did, the, how did the actual idea, obviously you wanted to do something in fashion, how did the actual idea for children's clothes and so on occur? Well, my first passion has been menswear. It always yeah. was menswear. I felt, the, the, A, there was a gap in the market because on the whole men dress in a very boring manner. Um, and I also felt that uh, it was uh, something that I loved and I wanted to push a little bit further. Um, but... On the way to sign off my business in France, I had this very bad head-on collision. I broke about 20 bones in my body, and I was actually air-ambulanced uh, back to the UK, where I spent a few weeks in hospital. Um, during that time, my neighbor in the next-door bed in the ward was a young mother of two who was uh, long-term sick, and she was busy trying to buy clothes for her two children by mail order. And she 
continued to complain about the lack of availability for nice children's clothes um, available via mail order. And that really sparked off the idea I didn't have any children. I had no intention of having children. I wanted to make men's clothes. But actually, I saw that is another gap in the market and possibly a little more commercial than my ideas to dress men up as uh, sort of Rococo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Dandies. Dandies, exactly. Okay. Although Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen was your kind of ideal. <laughs> Absolutely, he was. But unfortunately, there aren't that many no, of him. No, so true. it's a very fort- it, was, it was very fortunate that I ended up in hospital next to that woman because it really set me on the right track. And I came out of hospital and in my wheelchair with my mouth wired shut because I'd broken my jaw bones, I actually conducted uh, market research surveys and I went everywhere. I went to baby shows. I I sat in my chair outside mother care and I spent a lot of time talking to young mothers and parents and finding out what they really wanted. Mm. And uh, I think it might have been the sympathy vote of me being in in the wheelchair. But people were very good. They answered my questions and they gave me a lot of advice. And what I found that they really wanted was not just children's wear, nice children's wear, wearable, good quality, but middle market children's wear. They wanted maternity clothes. And so I set off designing a, a collection of maternity wear, which was in line with the current fashion trends. And that really got me going. But again, in the same way as you kind of have this aversion to debt, which is a sort of theme through your entrepreneurial career, you clearly have a, an eye for the opportunity. Um, there's, there's nowadays, in particular, there's an awful lot of uh, mothers and uh, women trying to set up online baby clothes stores. It's a, it's a real, you know, in a whole eBay trend. Um, and yet you were in there very first, very early on, and you saw that opportunity early on. Absolutely. Uh, the, um, the, the fact was, in those days, uh, 16 years ago, there really was very little available for pregnant women. There, there were about three companies on the market, and the, the offering was either a tent dress or a pair of dungarees. One of my first designs that caught the attention of the press was a bright pink lycra stretchy catsuit which looked fantastic on a very slim model <laughs> and uh, we, we, we got a, a huge uh, piece of PR in one of the national, pa- national papers um, sort of with the headline is this the future of maternity wear and uh, it, it, it got us a lot of attention yeah. um, actually in retrospect it wasn't such a great seller because it sold very well but when your average British woman tried it on at home it didn't look quite as good as on the model so <laughs> those early days of the, avant-garde maternity wear were toned yeah. down a little bit. But the kind of thing that gets you noticed when you're a growing business and need that kind of uh, free publicity, I guess. That's right. And even now, there are some styles that we design, yeah. and we call them PR styles. Yeah. We know they're not actually going to sell very well, yeah. but we'll do them because they grab the attention of the press. And also, you know, that 10% of the population who do want to dress a little bit outlandishly, um, even when they're pregnant, we've got the offering for them. But they're not the styles that we'll make in large quantities. I mean, it's a, a traditional fashion trait, that is a technique, isn't it? Used by fashion houses, big and small. Um, Let's just get back to the, because you're, you're, the growth of the business, it's become a very large business, but it has been organic and relatively slow. What do you feel about the speed with which your business has grown? I've often been asked whether I'd rather own a small piece of a large company or all of a small company. And actually, we've ended up with me owning all of a medium-sized company. Now, 
Little by little, we, we will continue to grow. Even this year, we're growing. In the recession, we're still 11% up on like for like on last year. Mm. Now, this is a situation that I'm quite happy with. I would have anticipated we grow about 20% this year. The recession has knocked us back a little bit. The lack of available um, capital has knocked us back a little mm. bit. But at the same time, I'm happy with the situation. Jojo is not just about money. Jojo's never been about money. Running a business, for me, is about corporate social responsibility. It's about creating jobs for people, creating jobs for people who like working for us, who like what we offer and like our business ethos. Now, that is more important to me than growing a huge company, which might dilute that business ethos. Felix Dennis, famous business publisher, always says, hold on to every, every penny of equity you can, which is a very, actually, his and your view is actually uh, not terribly a la mode at the moment, isn't it? No, not at all. And, um, and, and even last week, I spoke to someone who was, was very keen to invest in us. Uh, we, we want to open another 40 shops in the UK. If we do it organically through self-financing, it'll probably take us three or four years. Um, someone could come in and give me the cash to do it immediately. But that person's going to be looking for an exit strategy. Mm. I'm not looking for an exit strategy. I'm looking to grow this company for longevity. I'm looking to grow it so that the children, the grandchildren of our employees might still be working for us in the future. It's possibly a very feminine attitude to business. Possibly it's idealistic. But it's the way I like to run my company. I think you have to run your company uh, as you would like it to be run. Do you know what I mean? If it, if it ceases to become a reflection of you, then that's probably the time to uh, move on and get out. Have you ever been tempted to work yourself out of the business? I think um, I've, I've not been tempted to work myself out of the business, and as long as I love what I do, I wouldn't be. But also, it's not just about me. You know, we have grown to a level. We have a team of directors. We then have a team of managers. We then have a team of, man, uh, of middle managers. It's essential that the whole company, the whole workforce, subscribes to this business ethos mm -hmm. because it can't just be one person with this ideal. It's yeah. got to be everyone. We've got to work together. What we do with, with our charity, because we support a charity in Africa, which is very, very important to us, and we second people from Jojo to go and work at our charity in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, what we do with our profit share, it might be the directors of the company would say, oh, why bother giving warehouse boys profit share? I don't believe in that. So the directors must also yeah. subscribe to that. We don't have a hierarchical policy. Everyone eats in the same canteen in, in, on, in our warehouse. We don't have special reserve parking spaces for the directors. So everyone has to want to work in that type of company. Or they can go elsewhere and yeah. possibly earn more, possibly get bigger bonuses, yeah. and uh, maybe have that sort of uh, feet-on-the-desk type mentality. We're not like that. It's everyone gets their hands dirty and everyone works in whichever area needs the help at that particular time. Now, in, in 2005-ish, I think, um, you were looking at potentially releasing some equity and you had, I think, approaches and you probably still get approaches from VCs and, and conversations. Why didn't that happen? Yes, in 2005, we, d we did a beauty parade. It was just before we launched our retail expansion plan. Mm. And retail is very capital intensive. Mm. With a mail order and internet business, you can grow organically, especially if you do it the way I've done it. We do everything in-house. We don't outsource. We hold our own servers. We build our own uh, website. We design everything. Yeah. We don't outsource our marketing. We don't outsource our warehousing. So if you grow in that way, it's actually relatively easy to grow without spending a lot of capital. It's a drip feed mm. uh, type mm. of business growth. However, when you open a retail store, each retail store is going to cost you between 100 and 150,000 pounds in cash up front. 
the return on that capital invested will almost certainly take two years. So imagine you're opening 10 retail stores a year. You've got a lot of money invested. Now, I thought we couldn't open retail stores without an outside investor. Yeah. I did the beauty parade. I spent a lot of time talking to people. I pinpointed a couple, a couple of equity partners that I think I, I would have liked to have worked mm. with. But in the, in the time that that took... We opened four or five stores. <laughs> yeah. And in the time that that took, we opened four or five stores and we realized that yeah. actually, instead of opening 12 stores a year, if we reduced our, our business plan down to eight stores a year, it did become self-financing. Yeah, yeah. So we slowed down our growth, but very much to the benefit of the company in the long run. Yeah. Now, am I right in thinking that you're, you're now exploring to extend into Europe a franchising op- option? Yes, we've, we, we, we really feel that... Uh, Ultimately, our market in the UK is, is, is limited. Uh, we're a very small niche market. We cater for pregnant women and children up to five years old. Mm-hmm. So we're turning over about 20 million now, but that is a small part of, of the customer base here. We want to take our designs into other countries. We've had a lot of uh, requests for franchising internationally. We have looked at franchising. We're open to offers for franchise partnerships. We've got a franchise agreement waiting and ready. We haven't found the right partners yet. Now, mm. this is something that is very difficult when you mm. care as much about a business as we do, because in order to find that franchise partner, we have to find people with the same mentality. Mm. So that's one thing that's happening. So franchising is sitting there and is ready to go. And I'm sure as the recession comes to an end and as business picks up again in Europe, we will find some franchise partners because there are people who understand yeah. what we're trying to do in business and who believe in it. Um, but in the meantime, what we're doing is we're launching a multi-currency uh, website, and that goes live in about two months' time. And we're doing a marketing campaign in Europe and a marketing campaign in the USA. Now, it's very, very important if you're a British company, but your manufacturing base is international. At the moment, the pound is dire. Mm. So we could just sit here and watch our profits ebb away. We could sit here and watch our margins disappear. We could keep cutting costs until we have, uh, you know, we we have to compromise Mm. on the service levels that we adhere to. But we're not going to do that. So our policy at the moment is to try and sell as much in foreign foreign currency as we buy to ease that currency fluctuation. So these marketing campaigns have been put in place as quickly as possible to bring in some euros and some dollars into the business before it's too late. So you'll be you'll be selling direct from from manufacturing point abroad to uh, to customer abroad, well, as it were, outside outside. In the UK. effect, in yeah. currency. Yeah. I mean, in in the initial stages, we will actually be distributing from our head office in Wales. Yeah. So we will be dealing with the international orders from Wales, they will be uh, consolidated and bulk shipped and then put into the local postal systems. And that should start happening in the next couple of weeks. So it's, it's a test, it's a, it's, a, it's a toe in the water for international trading. And it will actually help us when we come to franchise, because in effect, we will have built up the brand in those territories. Yes. So we're specifically targeting, in the first instance, um, markets which we think are going to be receptive to the product and the brand, then when we come in a year or two's time when business starts going again yeah. to push those franchise opportunities, we will have a value already in those territories. What advice would you give to retailers right now, high street retailers like yours? I think it's very, very difficult for high street retailers, and I think we're going to see some excellent companies go to the wall purely because they don't have the wherewithal to fund their future purchasing 
Um, most retailers in this country are buying by letter of credit in the Far East. Traditionally, the banks will underwrite those letters of credit. Mm. And in our experience, the banks are no longer keen to underwrite those letters yeah. of credit. Now, we buy quite a lot in Europe still on credit terms, which again helps us from a cash flow point of view. But where we are buying in the Far East, we're no longer buying by letter of credit, we're buying with stage payments, which has put a huge um, stress on our cash flow. But I think it's a, it's a sad fact that so many retailers won't be able to fund their future purchasing, as we saw in the case of Woolworths. Mm. Um, but those businesses that don't have too much debt and that don't um, that that have a good loyal customer base, I think will survive. And it's the businesses that have been on slightly dicey water for the last few years, possibly have been bought out, had have exchanged hands two or three times in the last 10 years. Those are the ones we'll see going to the wall. I think advice for other retailers is to batten down the hatches, but not compromise on mm. your ethical values, not compromise on your quality, and not compromise on your customer service. So you have to cut corners in areas that the customer will not notice. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Um, finally, how have you changed in terms of your perception of entrepreneurship uh, and your own personal entrepreneurial style over the last 20 years? I don't think I've changed dramatically. I always uh, wanted to launch a business uh, believing that, that, that you can do well whilst doing good. And I always wanted to to adhere to my very strict code of moral conduct. Um, so I'm not sure that I've changed at all. What I probably have seen is that a lot of people would like to give me a lot of advice. And I listen respectfully to that advice, but I almost always go away and do the exact opposite. <laughs> okay, that's a nice point to end on. Thanks ever so much, Laura. Thank you. So there we are. Uh, a great interview with Laura, as I said at the beginning. Uh, a lot to learn from her experiences, a lot of pearls of wisdom in there, and a lot of frankness and honesty about her own entrepreneurial journey. So I thank Laura for that and uh, hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, it's worth, again, the good ones are always worth a repeat listen, so uh, keep that one as a keeper. Okay, so let's now uh, just first of all, I haven't done some uh, reader comments for a little while, but let me just uh, go through some recent comments from readers. And first of all, I just wanted to say a, a big thank you to Ryan. You know, we've been offering uh, books, business books to readers. If you want to review a business book, uh, I'll send you one. Uh, and uh, all you've got to do is send me back a four or five minute audio review and it'll appear on the podcast. But Ryan Wood uh, kind of just said, um, well, I've got a book. It's a really great book. It's called 12 Bar Blues. It won a, a, a Booker Prize one year. Uh, would you like it? And I love books. I did an English degree. Uh, I do enjoy books. So Ryan has kind of just kindly sent me a book. So Ryan, thanks ever so much. Um, he didn't really want his business mentioned, but I will mention the fact that he uh, is based in Woodstock, or, it, or his business is called Woodstock Industrial Supplies, and uh, yeah, nutsaboutbolts.org. Great name for a website. Anyway, thanks ever so much, Ryan. Really, really kind and very much appreciated. Uh, other than that, uh, also had a, a great message on Facebook. Uh, lots of people there now, 1,700, as I said, and growing all the time. A uh, great message from Ed Surgeon over there, uh, just thanking me for the podcast um, and uh, suggesting some guests. Now, if you want to suggest guests, if you want to suggest people that you want to hear me interview, 
on the podcast and they can be famous or not at all famous in terms of the entrepreneurial world. Uh, we've always prided ourselves on talking to people, talking to entrepreneurs and small business owners who've just got a fantastic story to tell, whatever their background, however well-known or not they are, then just send me an email, alex at smallbizpod.co.uk. And uh, honestly, I do listen to all suggestions. And you never know, the person you would like to see interviewed may well turn up. And then finally, I just wanted to say a big thank you to Roy. Uh, Roy has been sending me a number of emails with some great advice and tips and some background on his own uh, business. Uh, He's been kind of pondering setting up his own IT support business, Roy Hustleby, down there in Portsmouth and uh, enjoys the podcast. And I just sort of say hi to Roy. And uh, yeah, do keep all of your suggestions coming. Small Biz Pod, from the outset, both the podcast and the site uh, is very much about uh, listener and reader participation. So if you've got some thoughts to share, if you've got an audio comment, if you've got some suggestions, then as I say, please get in touch. You can give us a buzz on one of the lines on the contact section of the website at smallbizpod.co.uk. Leave a message if you want to leave an audio message, which I'll include in the sh- in the show, or uh, drop me an email, alex at smallbizpod.co.uk. So thank you all for listening. I don't really say that often enough, I don't think. But yeah, thank you all for listening. Uh, there's been a lot of new listeners of late, so do keep spreading the word. And uh, let's now go on to another short, snappy interview. And now our sponsors section, thanks to Alibaba.com, where we do a short, snappy two-minute highlight interview with an entrepreneur who is either exporting or importing their products successfully around the world. This week, we have a female Scottish entrepreneur who has a global market for her soap and body products business. My name's Denise Purdy and uh, I produce a line of organic body products which are biodegradable and vegan safe and I produce them here in the cottage in Argyll. I was actually brought up in a household with a, a very entrepreneurial grandmother who was a herbalist and she would treat people at home so that was, you know, that's the kind of background that I was brought up with anyway. You know, a lot of people say don't start a business from a hobby I'm the complete opposite. I think you have to really know passionately about the product. If you're going to sell a product, it's best to really know the insides and outsides of it, and then you can spend your time and energy on the selling of the product. I started off my company, um, it cost me £35, and I got all my ingredients, put it together, made my products, and went off to a Christmas fair. And, uh, and that's really how that's how my business has grown. That's what's happened here, um, because I've never needed, I've so far never needed to go to the bank and ask for money and things like that. I've just, I've just re, you know reinvested, reinvested, take what I need and reinvest and built business up. Well, I do do a whiskey soap for the distilleries, and that does sell everywhere. <laughs> Maybe it's because the company is so small that we're not, and we haven't borrowed money that we're, we're not in that big, you know, that position. But I'm just really glad that my company's going. It's not going too big too quickly. I'm just taking my time, and the new, you know, new product that we're developing is an international product. So there we are, a great interview with Denise, uh, quite a character, marvellous business, and the full interview, I'll put a link to the show notes. And do support our sponsors, alibaba.com, check them out, check what they have to offer in terms of accessing, accessing and sourcing products 
uh, go to smallbizpod.co.uk, click on one of the Alibaba.com banners and see what they have to offer. So there we go. That is the end of this episode of the podcast, bar the, of course, the music at the end. And it's been a while since I've gone back to one of my favourite net labels, Monotonic, who kindly let us play some of their artists uh, on their wonderful net label, which you can find at uh, mono211.com. And this track is from a Dutch artist called Jasper Boer, uh, also known as Yap Yap. And the track uh, is uh, really wonder- rather wonderful and uh, possibly appropriate. Uh, it's called Winds of Change. <laughs> 